Welcome to Onward in the Faith, a practical resource for your walk with Christ. My name is Ray Burns, and this is a bit of a bonus episode in my ongoing discussion about the Bible. Last week, when I was recording my episode about what is the Bible and how it's the Word of God and why we believe that, when I was editing, I kept noticing all these little moments where I would listen and say, oh, oh, I wish I would have talked more about this, or oh no, I hope that this doesn't get misconstrued or misunderstood, because the Bible has a lot of beliefs attached to it. And while with that episode, I just wanted to focus on the fact that it's not a collection of ideas, but is instead inspired by God and what that means, before I move on to the next main topic I wanted to discuss, which is how does it then impact our lives, I thought I would just do kind of a bonus episode and just talk about three ways that the Bible is commonly misunderstood and why it's important for us to understand those false beliefs so that we don't fall into any kind of traps as we're going on our Christian journey. And so as I go through these, these aren't in any particular order or number one being worse than three or anything like that. And really, each of these deserves their own uh, blog article or podcast episode. And I'll go ahead and make a plug for my Patreon to where if you would like to hear me talk more in depth about one of these topics, either through podcast form or written out on my blog, you can become a monthly supporter at patreon.com slash onwardinthefaith and support this ministry while also maybe getting to read about or listen to a topic that you are particularly interested in. And of course, the link for that will be down in the show notes. Now, the first misunderstanding I'd like to talk about is the idea that the Bible is a teaching manual. A lot of people will approach the Bible and see all the chapters and all the verse numbers and almost see it like a legal textbook. If I can point to something in the Bible, then that makes my point true. And depending on the circles some of us run around in, you may have heard of things called proof texts, where we have a belief and we prove that belief because the Bible has six to ten words that seem to prove what it is we're saying. And so we will use the Bible to beat people over the head because we take individual words out of the context that they were written in. And of course, I have an episode already on how to read and understand the Bible. And if you'd like to understand a bit more about that, I've spent a good amount of time already going through it. But for now, what we need to address with this misunderstanding is that the Bible isn't a teaching manual. It's not a series of bullet points. It is, in fact, a story. And I don't mean that in the sense of something fictional, like Lord of the Rings, but that it was written to tell us something. It was written to tell us history. It was written to tell us prophecy and reveal God to us in a way that is very unique to the Bible. In a way that we can really understand that is to realize that, first of all, the Bible spans the course of thousands of years, from Job to Moses to the prophets to the Gospels, to the book of Revelation, what we're reading isn't something that was just written out in the series of a few years, but is instead something that records the culture and history and belief systems and actions of different people throughout all of time. And not only that, but the Bible is also written by multiple authors. And so each author had their own writing style, each author had something that they wanted to get across, whether it was Moses wanting to record history, whether it was David just wanting to cry out to God in sorrow or joy. Each of these authors, while they deliver truth, had a different purpose in what they wrote. 
And the reason that we can't treat the Bible like a rule book where if we can point to something that makes it true is because while the Bible is inspired by God and therefore true, it also has lies and false beliefs in it. In other words, just because someone said it or someone thought it doesn't mean that God approved of it. And so just because we see something in the Bible doesn't mean that it makes it okay for us. So one example that I would use for that is if you read the book of Job. Job and his friends have a lot of back and forth. And a lot of people can look at Job's friends and say, well, it's clear that the things they're saying are wrong. But if you go and read what Job says, even Job's understanding of God is misplaced at times. Because Job looks at God as almost this impossible bully who is judging him for reasons that he can't understand and it's not fair to him and he's complaining and saying that nothing he can do can stop God because God doesn't punish the unjust or the just. He just punishes and and Job has this really warped view of God. But when we realize why Job is saying this, why his thoughts are so skewed about God, then we can realize that while we can learn from Job, the things that Job says aren't absolutely true simply because they're recorded in the Bible. Another one is Solomon and the multiple women in his lives. He had a whole host of wives and a whole host of concubines. And some people will look at that and say, well, clearly God is okay with a man having multiple wives because, see, Solomon did it, and Solomon was the wisest man in the world. But when we understand how God views marriage, how he views our relationship with our spouse— we're going to realize that just because Solomon did it doesn't mean that God approved of it. And we can even read in the book of Ecclesiastes why his multiple wives were such a problem. And so for some people, that's probably obvious. But from there, we also need to realize that if the Bible is not a rules manual, if it's not just this document that just we just open and it just gives us a bunch of rules, then we need to understand how it is that we're going to get our teachings from it. Because there are things in... Christianity that a lot of people will question because they will say things like, well, tell me where in the Bible specifically it says that. And people get satisfied because Christians, if they're honest, can't point to specific things sometimes and say, see, God has clearly said, thus saith the Lord. And some examples of that are, number one, the idea that God is Trinity, which is another episode I've covered in two parts. And what this is, is the understanding that God is one. He is one essence, but he's also three individual beings. He's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Each are separate, but each are also God. And it's hard for us to understand. And so Christians today who don't believe that, who believe in God is just God, and Jesus is a completely separate entity, and the Holy Spirit is either a separate entity or he's just the power of God, kind of like the force in Star Wars. People will say, you can't point to the Bible and say where God teaches this. And what they will instead say is Christians made it up in the early centuries and one of the councils that met. Another thing that people will point to and say the Bible doesn't clearly say this is that Christ is God and that he should be worshipped. And this is a popular one with Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons who see Christ as a better version of us or something beyond human, but not quite God. And they're almost trained when Christians are talking to them to say, well, show me in the Bible where specifically Jesus says, I am God, worship me. And Christ doesn't specifically say, I am God, worship me. And so 
people will walk away feeling like they've won and they've proved their points and that we believe something that's not in the Bible. Another way that our beliefs aren't completely concrete in the Bible is the idea that the New Testament is also inspired by God. And this is the challenge that comes from Jews and Muslims who will say that, yes, we should follow the Old Testament because that was clearly given by God. But this New Testament thing is corrupt and wicked and a fabrication from people, not God. And then finally, another belief that isn't written out clearly is that there's nothing in the entire universe that shares authority with God's word. And this would be one that Catholics would argue about. Because they would say, well, the Bible is our authority, but so is tradition. The words of the Pope, either now or throughout history, what the church has said is on equal level to the Bible. In other words, we can add to what's written in the Bible. And they can even argue against passages that talks about not adding to the Bible. And so with all of these, what we need to understand is that just because something isn't explicitly written out doesn't mean it's not true. Because what we do when we understand things like the Trinity or Christ's deity and why he's worthy of worship or why we believe the New Testament that we have or why the Bible itself is our only authority, we get those by being responsible readers of God's word. And when we do that, what we try to do is to be faithful to what we see in 2 Timothy 2.15 which says, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. And so when we don't treat the Bible like a rules manual or something that can just prove our beliefs because something is explicitly written, then what we can instead do is see what does God reveal as truth? What does he reveal about his character and his nature? How do we see things like the Trinity in the Bible? What evidence do we have that Christ is God? that he is worthy of worship, what instances or, or things that were said can help us to better understand why that is something that we should be believing. And so ultimately, when we start treating the Bible for what it is, instead of trying to make it something it's not, then at the end of the day, what that lets us do is to just simply handle it correctly, to understand truth because we know how to read the Bible, not just looking for specific words that we want to find, or pointing out and saying, aha, this isn't in there, so clearly I don't need to believe it. But instead, using the principles, the understandings, the the bigger pictures that God gives us of who he is and who we are and what he expects of us, and taking those things to say, okay, if this is what God always says is true, how does this impact me today? Or if God felt that this was true here in the book of Exodus— How should that affect my life today? What do I learn from God in kind of a big picture sense that would influence how I should view idols in the year 2020, where we don't tend to have giant calves made of gold? The second misunderstanding we can have about the Bible, and this is really the one that sparked my desire to make this bonus episode, is the idea that the Bible has no errors whatsoever. When we realize that the Bible does actually have errors, for a lot of people, that can completely rock their faith because they've been told for maybe their whole life that, no, the Bible is perfect and everything it says is absolutely true and there's no error whatsoever because it's delivered by God and God makes no mistakes. And that's one of those instances of yes, but also no. And here's what I mean. 
it sounds good to say that this book that we say holds the absolute truth and understanding of the universe, this book that guides our entire lives is without error. It sounds good, but when we fail to understand why we think that or fail to grasp and wrestle with why that might not be true, number one, that's laziness on our part because it's hard to accept. It's hard to understand. It takes a lot of our mind to really understand what the Bible is and how we can understand these errors that seem to be there. And it's also very dangerous because if we are debating someone or discussing the Bible with someone who does not believe it, they always have ammunition to show, well, how do you explain this contradiction? How do you explain this error? How do you explain all of these problems in the Bible? And we're left saying, well, I just believe it. I just have faith and that's enough. And when we fail to engage the Bible for what it really is, we become less useful to those who need the truth that is there. And we fail to glorify God by using our minds instead of just our hearts and our emotions to invest in the Bible, to draw closer to him and to truly understand who he is and what this beautiful gift is that he's given us. And all that having been said, the Bible did not have errors. In other words, you may hear people use the word inerrant when they talk about the Bible. The Bible is inerrant. But hopefully when they say that, what they will add to that is it's inerrant in its original writings. In other words, when the Bible was first written, when, or I should say when parts of the Bible were first written, so when Moses was writing the first five books, when David was writing Psalms, when the books of Kings and Chronicles were being recorded, when the Gospels were being written, God inspired those and inspired them perfectly. We know that because God is true, because God is perfect, he's not going to allow for mistakes to be written down in his primary means of us knowing who he is. But we don't have those original copies anymore. Instead, what we have are copies of copies of copies of copies. We have many, many Xerox copies of something that were all done by hand by people who truly loved God, but were actually human beings and fully capable of failure, especially if you dig into what copying the Bible was like back then in the early centuries. And despite some popular beliefs out there, there is actually no reason to believe that outside of the original Bible authors, any form of inspiration has happened in copying the Bible or translating it to a different language. And so what that means is that if a scribe in the year 200 made a small error and no one catches it, there's a good chance that that error without realizing it, is going to accidentally be copied and copied and copied again, all while adding new errors to that. But what are these errors in the Bible? Because people who are enemies of the Bible, people who want to disprove it or argue with Christians, love to point out that there are thousands upon thousands of these errors. And how can we call this book true if it's written so poorly that it doesn't seem to make sense? Because how can you have this many errors in a single book? Well, this is very much a topic for another episode, but to break it down, there are some very common errors that account for the vast majority of these seeming contradictions. One of them is simply writing errors. And Hebrew and Greek are different than English, obviously, but a way to understand it would be to picture a lowercase a, where you write the circle and then the little tail on it. Now picture a capital Q and picture a capital O. If all of your letters are the exact same size, it would be very easy, 
especially if you've been copying for eight to 10 hours a day, every day for the past two years, it would be very easy to really just go on autopilot. And as you're writing, not think about maybe what you're seeing or how you're writing it. And so when you mean to write something that looks like a lowercase a, you may accidentally cut through that circle and make what looks like a Q. Or your line may be completely illegible, or you may forget to add the line and accidentally make an O. And so obviously for the majority of these errors, we can look at the text and say, okay, it's obvious what they meant to write here. Because the letters or the words are so similar that this one only makes sense in this context of what's being written. Now, another one that can bother some people, and it's understandable why, is that there are added or removed words from the Bible. Now, to understand this in its most basic explanation is to realize that scribes and copyists back then didn't have the benefit that we do now of being able to go to a store and buy 400 sheets of paper for what amounts to 20 minutes of work at our job. Instead, whatever material they had to write on was very expensive. Whatever ink they had was very expensive. And so when you are hired by somebody to copy these things down, they are going to want you to not just blow through all their money because you keep making mistakes. Instead, you are going to use everything you can on this one sheet of vellum or parchment or whatever you're writing on. You're going to try to get the, the most bang for your buck, really. And so what often happens is that a scribe will be writing and they'll be, say, three-fourths of the way down the page and realize that, oh no, I forgot to write a line because my, my eyes skipped over it. Or if you've ever read a book when you're tired and you'll read a line and then you'll read what you thought was the next line, but come to find out you skipped one or two lines because you're so tired. When a scribe realizes that, they don't have many options because they can't just tear up this paper, start over, and hope to do better next time because that's paper cost and that's ink cost and that's also just their time that they've spent on this one page that they're not going to get back. And so instead what they would often do is try to either squeeze that missing line above or below or they might try to write it off in the margins. Problem with that, of course, is that when another scribe comes along to copy what you've written, they're not going to understand why that's there necessarily. They're going to read it and say, okay, is this something that was supposed to be added and this scribe had to just squeeze it in? Or are they writing something to clarify or explain something in this text? Because you will see things in the original languages where a scribe may be so excited about what they're, they're writing and copying that off to the margins, they might write something like, hallelujah, praise God. And that could accidentally get slotted in to the original text because while it was just a scribe kind of going rogue and just expressing his excitement and what he's doing, other scribes don't know that. And so they might add a random hallelujah at the end of a line that is exciting, that is encouraging, that does make us want to cry out in joy because of how amazing our God is. Now, another way that things can get added is that entire chunks of text may be added to the Bible. Now, the most common one of these is in John 8, verses 1 through 11, which is that famous story of the woman who was caught in adultery, and Christ says, whoever's without sin, cast the first stone, and Christians even today still debate about, well, what did he bend down and start writing in the dirt? That's a very popular 
passage of the Bible, but as we have uncovered older and older documents, in other words, as we found copies of the Bible that are closer and closer to the original copies, this story actually doesn't appear anywhere in them. And that can seem strange, and it can seem like, oh, people are adding to the Bible, or the Bible's clearly filled with lies because people are just making it up as they go. But what likely happened here is that this was probably a story that was believed, but maybe wasn't anywhere in the Bible. It may have been something like a folk story that people had attached to the Bible, because it sounds really good. You know, Christ is coming in like a superhero, and he's, you know, pointing out hypocrisy and saying, oh, well, if you're without sin, go ahead and stone her. Or should we stone you when we're done with her? You know, it's just this, it's very like Jesus to do something like that. And there's a little bit of mystery to it. You know, what is he writing in the dirt? And it, it just, it's a story that sounds good. And it may have happened. But what's equally possible is that a scribe at the time knew this story. He knew it had to be in the Bible. Because remember, back then they didn't have easy access to Bibles. Most scribes may have only seen a Bible when they were copying it. And so this scribe may have been sitting there saying to himself, you know, I know the story about Jesus and this woman caught in adultery is there. I'm not sure where it's supposed to be, but this seems like a, a good place to put it. So I want to make sure that this story of Jesus doesn't get lost to time. I want to make sure that it's preserved so that people can know that Jesus did this thing. And so obviously this wasn't done with any kind of evil purpose in mind. But what we can see is that it does explain why older manuscripts wouldn't have this. But whatever amount of errors there seem to be, or words added or removed, or differences between certain texts found throughout the world, the important thing to realize is that whatever errors there are, they don't change the essential teachings of the gospel, of salvation, of our need for Christ, of God's holiness, of the fact that people are very wicked and can do nothing to earn the grace of God. That has never, ever been changed, no matter what errors people have found. And so when people bring this accusation of errors and mistakes in the Bible, if we understand how the Bible was written, how it was copied, and, and know what the history of it is throughout the ages, then we don't need to be afraid of these seeming contradictions. We don't need to be ashamed or try to divert the conversation or just clam up in our turtle shell and plug our ears and say, la, 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 I have faith, I don't need to listen to you. No, we can engage people. We can talk to them about, yes, there are these errors, and here's why. But as we uncover more documents that are closer to the original, here's the exciting thing. Nothing has changed. God is still the God that we know. Christ is still who he is, and he did what he did on the cross. Nothing has been added or removed based on what history keeps revealing to us. And that's really exciting because that even more proves just how incredible this gift is from God that even with our mess-ups, even with our mistakes and tired scribes and people trying to save money, God has still amazingly preserved the truth of what he's always wanted us to know. And he, by all assumptions, is going to keep preserving that no matter how much we as human beings want to change it or apologize for what God has said or done throughout history, God is God and he is going to preserve what he wants us to know. And now one last thing on this topic that I want to hit very quickly is the idea of seeming contradictions in the Bible. Things that aren't actually errors, but seem to be two different things. You know, we'll say things like, you know, God loves everyone, but the Bible also says that God 
loved Jacob but hated Esau. Clearly, that's a contradiction. And when things like that come up, that's not an issue of scribes messing something up or it somehow being corrupted throughout history. Instead, what that always comes down to is that we as readers are misunderstanding what's actually happening or why something is being said. And so that can happen when we are translating it from the original Greek or Hebrew into English. That can also happen just because we don't understand the cultural differences between how we understand the world and how the people at that time understood the world. And so... That's not something I want to get into today, but I did want to at least address that there do seem to be contradictions in the Bible, but those don't need to be explained away by human error, but instead, I guess, user error on our part, just simply not understanding why things are said like that. But that's not to say that we can't understand it. It's that we now see, oh, here's something I can dig into. Here's something I can study. Here's something I can bring to my pastor or a a Christian who's thoughts and opinions I trust, and we can get to know our God even more because we want to handle his word well. We want to be responsible with the book he's given us, and part of that is simply understanding what in the world is this contradiction about. And the final misunderstanding I want to tackle is one that I really, really wanted to discuss in the last episode, but it was going to add so much more time, and that is the idea that the Bible is true because the Bible says that it's true. And that might seem like an obvious statement, but if a lot of people are honest with themselves, because I know I thought this, if someone would say, why is the Bible true? Well, the Bible is written by God. Well, how do you know the Bible is written by God? Well, the Bible says that it was written by God. Okay, but how do you know the Bible is not lying? Well, because the Bible is written by God and God doesn't lie. Okay, how do you know the Bible is written by God? And on and on this cycle goes where we can't actually pin down why we think the Bible is true. We just say, well, the, you know, the Bible says it's true, and so I believe it. And that gives us a lot of issues that we then have to deal with because we don't give that same authority to other texts. So something like the Quran or the Book of Mormon or when the Pope speaks, we don't say, well, they claim to represent God, so clearly they represent God. No, we, we doubt what is written in those things or what is said by those people. And if we're going to be responsible and if we're going to really have a deep relationship with God and understand who he is and what he's given us, then it's important for us to really dig into why is it that we believe the Bible is true? Why do we believe what it says when it says that all scripture is inspired by God? And beyond that, as we'll talk about next week, why then would we let this book dictate our lives? And so I just want to briefly touch on why we believe that the Bible is true and why we believe that it is inspired. The reason that we believe that it's true is because it has a lot of historical evidence that supports the things that are said. So when you read the Old Testament, it talks a lot about locations and it talks a lot about people groups, the Hittites, the Amorites, people like that, Uh, even locations like Sodom and Gomorrah. Historians believe they've actually found where these people groups lived, or where these cities were located. And so what that does is it shows us that the Bible isn't just setting out to make things up. It seems to be recording history, just like in our modern-day history, we would talk about places like Turkey or China or Russia, and we would talk about people there, and we wouldn't be doing it because we're trying to make things up or convince someone. We're simply saying, here is what happened. And so with that, if we are seeing that the Bible seems to be accurately recording real events, real places, and real people, then on top of that, 
it makes it even more easy to believe that the supernatural things that it records, like God speaking or miracles or plagues or things like that, it makes it easier to believe that those things are true because they are told with the exact same voice and the exact same intensity and the exact same level of truth as everything else that we would read. We also believe that it's true because of how long it has survived. And this on its own is obviously not the best evidence, but the fact is that the book of Job is really old. The books written by Moses are really, really old. All these books have been kept and preserved through all this time carried by Israel, and then finally carried on by Christians. And what's amazing is that very few people have liked the Bible for long periods of time. The Bible is offensive. The Bible causes us to deny our desires and instead desire the things of God. It says that we are evil. We are not the good people we think we are, that we are undeserving of God's goodness and his favor. That's kind of offensive because... In our flesh, we want to enjoy our sinful things. We want to feel amazing. We don't want someone to tell us that we are wrong for these desires we have or these things that we do or these thoughts that we think. And so that's why throughout history we see that the people of God are so persecuted and so beaten down because people hate God. And therefore, they hate those who represent him and those who follow him because we are, in their minds, guilty by association and the more bold Christians are willing to say what God says. You know, we even see John was beheaded for calling out a Roman ruler. And yet, despite all of this persecution and all of this hatred towards God and Christians and the church, this Bible has been preserved. It has never been destroyed, no matter how much governments or groups or individuals may want it to be wiped off the face of the earth. The reality is that it's everywhere and it's not going anywhere. Some places it may struggle, some places it may be banned, but the world just can't get rid of this true thing that points out how dark and wicked and corrupt everyone is. And then finally, the Bible not only proves itself through historical means and through its resilience, but also all of the prophecies that are written inside of it. Whatever prophecies it is that you want to look at, the Bible has fulfilled Really, all of them that should have been fulfilled at this point. God has never failed to say, here's what's going to happen, and it doesn't happen. What God says is what happens. Even the more complicated prophecies, like the giant statue made of different kinds of metal, people at that time didn't know what that meant. And that's what's incredible, is because then, in time, whenever we realize that this statue represented different nations and how those nations fell, then we see that God was calling something that was going to happen, and no one knew what to expect from it. But then in hindsight, we see that God is simply proving that he is powerful, that he is all-knowing, and that what he says is true. And these things are recorded in this same book that calls us to repentance, that calls us to cry out to God for salvation and to ask Christ to pay the penalty for our sins on the cross. And those are just some big reasons why we would say, yeah, the Bible is true, because not because the Bible says it's true, but because it has proved itself. Now, the reason that we would say it's inspired is a little less concrete, obviously. Uh, But one way is that we just look at the lives that the Bible has changed and always changed. It's never been this flash-in-the-pan self-help book or, you know, something on the New York Times bestseller list that everyone is talking about and is, is just ravenous for for months or even years, but then just falls off and gets forgotten. 
the Bible has always been about changing lives. And it does that not because it's convincing, but because the truths that are inside of it are timeless. They aren't based on culture. They aren't just opinion. They are things that really just speak to our human condition. And it tells us who we are. And then from there explains why it is that we need Jesus Christ so much and why he is the only answer to everything. Another way that we would say it's inspired is how much unity there is between all those authors that have written it. Because there are so many voices and so many styles and even so many genres. Because Psalms reads much differently than Revelation, which reads differently than Genesis. They're all dealing with different things. They all have different purposes to them. But what's incredible is as we look and really study the Bible, the Bible is always pointing in one direction, and that is the redemption of a fallen world, the coming of a Savior to live a perfect life and die and be resurrected and to be our only way to have peace with God. And people in the Old Testament didn't understand that. They knew that someone was coming. They knew that God was going to keep his word and redeem them somehow, but they were not expecting Jesus Christ. But we have the benefit now of being able to look back and see how God, everything he did, has always been pointing to sending his son, has always been about our fallenness, our need for God, our inability to do good on our own. And then when Christ comes on the scene, it's just this explosion because everything now makes sense. And then everything we see after that is really clarifying what we've seen in the Old Testament. So especially if you read things like Paul, where he talks about these mysteries of God, we see that these mysteries aren't things that aren't solved, but things that have always been mysterious, always been strange, and always been unknown until Christ was revealed. And from there, we see that it's not just Jews and Israel that are saved, it's everyone. Salvation is open to everyone. It's not about our heritage or our birthplace, it's just about God's grace being poured out on all the world. And anyone who calls on the name of Jesus Christ will be saved, Jew or Gentile. It doesn't matter. And so we see over and over that the New Testament is just constantly clarifying, why were there sacrifices? What did these represent? Why were there these holy days? What did they represent? Why couldn't Israel wear certain kinds of fabric or eat certain kinds of food? And we see that all of this was always a shadow. It was an unclear picture of something much greater that was coming, and that's Jesus Christ. But here's the thing. Despite all those things that can convince us that the Bible's true and convince us that it's inspired by God, those things don't mean the Bible's true. What makes the Bible true is that it's from God. And that might sound like a contradiction because I had already railed on people who say, well, I believe the Bible's true because I have faith. But let me explain what I mean by this. The Bible proves that it's from God, but what ultimately makes the Bible true is that the source of it is true. The source of it is God, and therefore, if he gave us the Bible, it has to be true. And so when we say things like, well, the Bible is true because of these fulfilled prophecies, then if another book has fulfilled prophecies, does that make it true and from God? If another book says, well, I have all this historical evidence that proves that this everything that it says about history is true, so let's believe the supernatural things. Well, we wouldn't just buy that from any other book. And of course, if a book has the power to change lives, or it's filled with these truths that really speak to the reality of the human condition, heedless of what popular culture says, or if it has just this single unity 
across multiple authors, we're not going to suddenly say, well, it has all these things, it changes lives, so it clearly must be from God. Instead, what we need to really accept and understand is that when we do that, then we make evidence more important than God. We say that God has to answer to evidence and proof. Now, of course, all this evidence helps to support it. It helps to show, why does this thing change lives? Well, clearly it's from God. Well, why do we really think it's from God? Well, if it's from God, it's going to be true. The things that God says are going to happen will happen. The things that God inspires Moses or other authors to record as historical fact should be things that actually happened. And so this evidence gives us confidence that, yes, there's a reason that this is true. It's because it's from God and God's not going to lie. But ultimately, that's not what convinces us. It can help us to discuss it with non-Christians. It can help to reinforce our faith. But really, no amount of solid evidence is going to make people accept the things of God. Because the Bible is very clear that we hate God. We don't want to accept the things of him. We naturally reject him and fight him. And so no amount of proof or evidence is going to just outright turn someone to God. Instead, we need to realize that at the end, it's the Holy Spirit that does the convincing. In uh, 1 Corinthians twelve fourteen, it says, But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually appraised. And so what Paul is pointing out here, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is that no amount of saying, look at this universe, clearly God has to exist. No amount of pointing to morality and saying, why do you think this is evil? Why do you think this is good? How can you claim that without a higher authority? No amount of looking at the Bible and saying, look how true this has to be based on all this evidence. At the end of the day, none of that is going to ultimately turn someone away from their sin and towards Jesus Christ. It's going to be used by the Holy Spirit, certainly, because there are plenty of stories out there of people who have seen how true the Bible must be, and God has used that to call them to repentance. But evidence on its own doesn't convince us of the truths of God. It's the Holy Spirit who removes the blinders of our flesh and of our love for sin, and instead gives us new eyes to see the truth of God and our need for him at any cost to our own happiness, to our own desires, even to our own lives. It's the Holy Spirit that makes us see the Bible, see its truths, and say, God, I want that at the cost of everything else, because you are ultimate. And so through that, we start to realize that it's not the Bible that changes us. It's the power of God as he uses the Bible to draw us closer to him. It's him using the Holy Spirit, and it's the Holy Spirit's evidence in our lives that keeps revealing truth and pulling us closer to God. And he is the one that makes this all so clear. It's not the Bible itself, because the Bible itself isn't magical. The Bible is simply telling us, here's God, here's who you are, and here's how God has been working throughout all of history. And there are plenty of books that can tell us who we are. There's plenty of books that can teach us history, but there's only one book that can tell us who God is and that God will then use to change who we are. And I want to end this talk with really being very clear by what this means for us. Because it can be very easy to say, well, I don't need to then understand the things of the Bible because I'll just leave it up to God. Why should I study? Why should I learn? Why should I wrestle with these difficult and sometimes boring subjects like how the Bible was translated throughout history? I don't need to because that's not going to bring anyone closer to God. But here's the thing. Just because it's not 
going to be what brings someone to Christ, it can very often be that thing that will plant the seed that the Holy Spirit uses to bring them to Christ. And so as those who truly want to follow God and truly want to glorify Christ and who at the end of the day really want to just love this thing that God has given us, then we need to be responsible with our knowledge and with our understanding, no matter how frustrating it may be or boring or how much we would rather watch sports or read a book or, you know, enjoy the outdoors. Ultimately, if our goal is to love God, then we need to love that thing he's given us in order to know him better. You know, we need to invest in it. We need to take the time to really understand what is this book about? How did I get it? What is its purpose in my life? And then when we understand the Bible, of course, we also need to be very faithful in our study of it, not just studying what the Bible is, but what it reveals. Because when we can really understand how to read the Bible, it's going to change us because we can't be confronted with the reality of who God is and walk away being the same as we were before. If we have the Holy Spirit bringing us to truth, then he's going to bring us to be more and more like Jesus Christ. The only thing we can do is either walk in obedience to him and let him change us, or we can walk in disobedience and be in rebellion to the influence of the Holy Spirit and in rebellion to the majesty and the authority of Jesus Christ. But when we understand the Bible, we're not going to want to do that. We're, we're going to want God. We're going to want Christ. We're going to want to be obedient to the Holy Spirit. And then when we understand the Bible, when we understand not only what it is, but what it says, then we're going to be able to defend our faith. And that is so critical to the Christian life. Because a lot of people think that defending our faith is simply going toe-to-toe with atheists and being like someone like Ravi Zacharias or Frank Turek, who make a life out of defending the faith. And we look at those guys and we say, oh, I could never do that. They are so smart. They are so well-studied. You know, I'll just, I'll just show love to my atheist friends and they'll just want Jesus because of what they see. But defending our faith isn't just against those who hate God. It's also against those who love God. The Bible, especially the New Testament, over and over warns against the reality of false teachers, those who would take the Bible and corrupt it and twist it and try to make it say something that it doesn't or try to make the Bible be something that it's not. And as we spent this whole episode talking about, that is very dangerous for our lives because when we allow God's word to be twisted and distorted, then it stops being about what God says and instead what man wants him to have said. And so as Christians, we need to be willing to defend our faith to those within our own faith. Sometimes these are people who claim to be Christians and aren't, but a lot of times it's going to be fellow Christians who simply have a misunderstanding about God, who are reading the same Bible we are and are trying to understand the things that it says, but for one reason or another, they are coming away with a wrong understanding and need to be corrected, or we have a false understanding and a loving Christian who has also studied the Bible well, is going to come alongside us and say, here's where you're missing the mark. Here's where you've gone astray. Here's why this doesn't make sense with the rest of the things that we see in the Bible. And then finally, sometimes we need to defend the faith to ourselves because although we have the Holy Spirit living in us and he is constantly growing us to be more and more like Christ and less like the world, he's the one who makes us love the things of God and hate the things that God doesn't love. That's not everything that we have within us. On this side of heaven, we've still got this ugly, gross, wretched sin nature that although Christ has killed its hold over us, there are still days that we still want to walk in obedience to it. We want to give in to our desires and our passions and our lusts. We want to get angry. We want to gossip. We want to be lazy. We want to spend money on things that have no real value 
other than serving as idols to us because it makes us feel good to buy that thing. And so there's times where we want to convince ourselves and say, you know, God wants this for me. God wants me to be happy. God wants me, God has no problem with me doing this thing or that thing. And sometimes we need to study the Bible simply to protect ourselves from ourselves, to say, no, you be quiet. You don't know what you're talking about. Here's what God has clearly pointed out. I don't care what your desires are. I don't care how you feel in this moment. I don't care if you don't want to do it. This is what God says, and this is what we do, because we love God, not ourselves. And the best way for us to do that, the best way for us to sit there in the quiet of a room and beat ourselves up is to simply know the Bible, because the Bible lets us know God. I hope you found this extra discussion on misunderstandings of the Bible useful or valuable and hopefully encouraging. If you'd like to support this ministry, you can do so every month for as little as $1 by visiting patreon.com slash onwardinthefaith. Links to any articles that I've talked about or referenced will be down in the show notes along with a link to my Patreon. And I hope you look forward to the next episode where I'll really get into why the Bible changes our life the way that it does. So thank you for listening and keep moving onward in your faith toward maturity in Christ.